Welcome to Goodwill Hunters. Here, we'll explore the ultimate question, how to use profits for purpose. It's been said business must help solve the global challenges we face. In this podcast, we explore how. How can the private and not-for-profits work better together? What truly constitutes aid and progress? And how can we transform international development? Here, we talk with the thought leaders, the game changers, the intellectuals, and the campaigners. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn, and this is Goodwill Hunters. Hello, and welcome to episode 28 of Goodwill Hunters. Today on the show, we have Lee Barnes. Lee is the Chief Purpose Officer of the Intrepid Group, the world's largest provider of adventure travel experiences. The Chief Purpose Officer role is a new position championed by Intrepid Group CEO James Thornton, which was created to focus on sustained growth in the company's purpose initiatives. As CPO, Barnes is responsible for working closely with the Intrepid Foundation and external partners. As Intrepid Group seeks to create more shared value projects and operate a business with a purpose beyond profit. In 2018, the company will be committing 0.75% of global revenue towards purpose activities, creating a team of dedicated employees to lead the Intrepid Foundation and attaining B Corp status, which they've now done. Lee, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks heaps uh, for having me. Jeez, uh, that intro makes me sound way more impressive than I actually am. So thanks so much for that. <laughs> You're humble like all of our guests. I, I'm sure that you are that impressive. Now, <laughs> let, let's start with your role, Lee, because I, I did a little bit of background research and I couldn't find anyone else who was the chief purpose officer of anything. So from what I can tell, there might be you and someone at PwC, but it, it doesn't I, seem yeah. to be a role that's really caught on. I think so, yeah. Definitely that there's someone else at PwC. I keep mentioning that someone. I probably should find out who they are. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think their role is different. Theirs is very much around um, – in a way, a lot of companies are tackling the purposes from an employee engagement point of view, so a lot more internal. Uh, we do focus that from Intrepid. It's one part of what I do um, is managing uh, our people, well, what's typically called a HR department. Um, so, yeah, I think we're the first of its, the first of its kinds – Definitely in Australia, um, and, but I think it's something that we'll see more of or similar things happening in the future, especially off the back of the uh, Royal Commission in Australia and the falling uh, trust of, of both government and companies in, uh, around the world. Yeah, and I'd love to get into that Royal Commission shortly. Let's uh, let's backtrack a little bit here. So your role was uh, the decision of the Intrepid Group CEO to create a Chief yeah. Purpose Officer. So what what prompted that for the company? I think, well, what, not I think, well, what happened was we broke um, up from TUI. So we were part of TUI, which is a large multinational travel company, um, and but we're back under private ownership. So our two founders... Uh, Manch and Daryl uh, took up complete ownership back of the company. And at that time, we set our course to have a purpose and profit uh, strategy. And over those two years, we had our best two years ever. So we had record years of growth and also record years of being able to deliver on our purpose, um, You know, ensuring that money was going to local communities, our foundation was raising money, um, we were looking after wild, wildlife, et cetera, et cetera. So the business was performing really, really strongly. Um, and then about, I think, 18 months ago, um, we really saw that we probably need a stewardship for both components of it, so of our purpose and of our profit, and two roles were created. So Michael Edwards is now the Chief Growth Officer, 
um, and he's responsible for um, the profit um, part of our business and growth. And my role was created as the chief purpose officer to really ensure that we embed purpose across our business and that we continue to grow with purpose. So to continue that we keep doing the right things and those right things continue to help us grow. Right. Okay. So Intrepid has always been a little bit different to other tour companies. Thing, yeah. You know, companies like Kentucky, Top Deck, Trafalgar all come to mind. Intrepid has always differentiated itself from the others. How does this transition for the company differentiate Intrepid even more? Um, yeah, that's a really good question, actually. Um, I think the, the, you're right there. The, the business has always been different than those other tour operators. So first of all, I think why we've been successful and why we've been different is the actual product has impact at its core. So the actual product itself delivers on a really positive impact that the money from our trips goes into local communities, the trips are carbon offset, um, you use local transport. So the actual product itself has amazing impact. So I think that's a great differentiator. I think what this role helps us do even further is provide greater transparency. So one of the big things that I'm focusing on around is measurement reporting. So to have that transparency around what we're doing. We've, as you've said in the intro, we recently became a B Corp. Um, so that's that further thing, trying to find accreditation. So we're really trying to not only have it part of our business, but ensure that we're doing all the right things, just like you would with your finances. Yeah, have strong measurement around it, have strong governance, um, have that transparency. So a lot of other companies and businesses, not just two operators, but across the sector will use it for marketing. Yeah, and then they won't actually um, have it as part of their business. So I think what this role does and differentiates in a lot of other organizations that ensures that the purpose components of the business are delivering on what a business needs, reporting, impact, governance, transparency, marketing. So it's actually part of what we're doing as an organization, not just a marketing, not just a, not just a marketing campaign, not just a, a corporate social responsibility program, that it's actually coming and being built into every part of our business. And I think that's going to continue to be the big differentiator, keep being part of our product and then keep being a part of our business. And that's the essence of B Corp, isn't it? Is is entrenching the purpose and the mission of a company throughout the entire company as opposed to having a standalone CSR team. Uh, and we, we had Andrea D'Almeida on this show, um, awesome. who I'm sure you know, the CEO of um, VLab Australia. And we, we talked a lot about what B Corp certification actually means, but I'm interested, why why was that one of your first goals? Why is becoming B Corp certified so important to Intrepid? Yeah, I think there's two main reasons. One is as a trust mark. Yep, so it's that legitimacy, the same way as you would get your financial accounts sort of ticked off um, or audited. It gives you that um credibility and trust that we are actually doing what we say we do um so i think that was incredibly important for us and the other two it's a, a framework for us to get better so what it actually did was go through every part of our business so looking at our governance our workers community customer and environment and did an audit so it went through every part of our business you know how we get our electricity to how we do our supply chain to um, do we pay our staff bonuses? Like every part, like it was quite intensive. It actually took us three years to become uh, a B Corp. It was a lot of lot of work because wow. um, we had to certify over 23 officers. But it was actually a framework to get better. So it showed us where we weren't doing as good as we should have been and how we needed to improve to get better. So one example is we've always, you know, inter- we, we travel to over 120 different countries and we've always done carbon offsetting and looking to reduce plastic on our trips. The actual 
environmental part of our trips on the ground was fantastic. But what we were maybe doing at our office level, we hadn't looked into as much as we probably should have. And we were like, oh, geez, come on. We should definitely have been doing this. And now we've been able to go in, make those changes and rectify it. And that's just a small example that's happened with contracting with um, some of our suppliers in Egypt, our paternity, maternity leave globally, and just a number of different areas. So it is a framework for us to be a better organization. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So something I've found is is corporates that uh, move towards being purpose-oriented, generally it is because of increasing pressure from their stakeholders. So we talked last year about how there were more hostile AGMs than ever before, meaning annual general meetings where shareholders came along and really put climate change and, and supply chains on the table. So for Intrepid, I mean, you don't have shareholders, but you certainly have stakeholders in the business. Mm. Were your stakeholders, the people that go on your trips, calling for Intrepid to make these changes? Was that a precursor to the change or do you think you've preempted that? No, I think we're quite in a lucky position that our founders have always had a purpose. You know, when the trips and the business were actually created 30 years ago, there was purpose at the core. They wanted the trips to have a good impact on the places they visited. And those ethos are right through our company. So we've probably been quite lucky in that we've had it from a ground up, um, that it's always been part of the business. It probably hasn't had the um, marketing lingo around it. You know, the term purpose has only really seems to have come into fruition over the last maybe five years um, before it was just probably called doing the right thing or, um, you know, a number of different uh, components. So, the terms come into fruition and it's now a bigger term in business, but I think we've been very lucky that it's always been part of the organization. We've always had earnest conversations around these topics. So a good example is um, elephant rides. So we banned um, riding elephants. Um, and initially when we did the research, so we, we, we paid for the research to be taken place to go in and look at could elephants be treated, um, you know, what's, what's the um, wildlife conditions? So I'll start again. Um, what's the condition of elephants um, when they're being ridden? Are they treated well, et cetera, et cetera? And the, the research came back that um, it wasn't. You couldn't have an elephant being ridden uh, in a humane way. But at the time for our business, Southeast Asia was, um, I think, like almost 40% of our business. And elephant riding was like the Instagram image of its time. Um, and that was the most, you know, you I don't know if you could, if we remember back then, people actually had people riding elephants on their Facebook, on their, you know, their social media platforms. It was a really big deal and it was a big experience for people to have when they went to Southeast Asia. But we knew it wasn't right. So we had to make this decision and we, we made it to no longer ride elephants, even though it could have had a, a big commercial risk for us as an organisation. And in fact, what happened, it had the opposite effect that sales went up to Southeast Asia and we had really strong brand engagement and we've had, you know, over 100 uh, tour operators no longer offer elephant rides and TripAdvisor has removed elephant rides from their site. So there's been a massive amount of goodwill and, um, you know, good outcomes from that, but it was a tough commercial decision at, at the time. Yeah, I can imagine. And that's sort of proof of where taking the risk of segmenting your market can really pay off because you actually find a much more loyal niche in the market who will respond even better to your company because you've articulated your values so clearly. Yeah, yeah. And it's um, it's definitely made our customers more passionate and believe in what we do and they want to travel with us. Um, you know, I think also when we decided to become carbon neutral in 2010, Initially, there was a lot of backlash on social media, um, probably telling us to stay in our lane. 
Um, but, you know, we believed that, you know, as travellers, we were part of the, the problem and we needed to create a solution. And now our customers, you know, they travel with us because they trust us and they believe that we're doing the right thing. So it can become really, really powerful um, and can really help you get brand advocates and people that engage with your brand beyond just um, that commercial transaction and they want to, you know, uh, be promoters for you. Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's it's actually really reassuring to hear that, I think. Yeah, I think so much of your job reassures me. Uh, it gives me confidence in millennials. <laughs> that's, that's, that's good. No, I think, like, to be honest, most people want to do the right thing. Like, with that elephant case, like, most people want to do the right thing. They just don't know, like, a lot of the time. And it's so hard to be an expert on all the topics all of the time. And, you know, you're going on a holiday. You know, you've saved your money. You've got your one holiday of the year. You want to have such an amazing experience. And to be honest, it's really hard to research everything you do on a trip. You know, you just want to relax and have fun and meet people and engage. So people aren't, you know, going out maliciously. They just, you know, don't know and they're looking to, to be guided, to have someone talk to them, to educate them, explain why, um, but then also provide a really great experience, you know, and have a great product at the same time. So um, I think that it is comforting, but I think people want to know and they just, you know, are cra- craving that knowledge. Yes, true, definitely. So so can you explain to me the mechanics of ensuring that each trip is purposeful and that each trip is having the sort of community impact that you want it to have? How does that operate day to day? Yeah, well, I think it's in the model of how we go about building it. So all of our trips use local leaders. So you've got a local leader on the ground um, that gives you really good engagement with the local community. We stay at locally owned and operated hotels. We use local transport, we eat at local restaurants. So the actual product itself by the by design delivers positive impact. So that's a really important part of our trips that that money gets into local communities so they can then control what they do with that dollar. So the actual design of the trips has that built in. And I think that's one of the most powerful things that you can do, especially one of the reasons why travel is so great. It gets money directly into those communities um, that need it. So that's that's number one thing. The other is we carbon offset all of our trips. So each year we go through and look at what these trips off, uh, what, what carbon they create, and then we go through and offset them. Um, but I think they're the, they're the main thing is how the actual trip is designed and that, that local interaction ensures that the money gets into the local communities. One of the other things we've been doing uh, recently is community-based tourism. Um, and this is probably, you know, to the point where we, we started off the conversation around development. We partner with the local community, an NGO, and we go and work on a community-based tourism project. So this is where there's a need in the community. Maybe the agriculture is no longer sustainable, providing enough income. There's urban drift occurring in those communities. And there's a need for um, you know, more revenue, more income in that community to be, to be sustainable. And we'll work with the NGO and the community. The community will pitch to us what solutions they're after and we'll develop uh, a tourism program with them um, and then bring customers into that community. So I just went and visited uh, Moyang, which is about an hour outside of Bagan in Myanmar. And three years ago, we partnered with ActionAid to develop a community-based tourism project, help them build a lodge, build accommodation, and we build tourism experiences. So mountain bike riding, cooking classes, uh, local interaction. Um, and then we went in and you know started sending our customers there. And the feedback um, from the customers has been amazing and the feedback from the community has been great. We've seen really great women empowerment. So women are now running the program. We're seeing urban drift 
being prevented. People are deciding to stay in that community. And we're also seeing great environmental improvements as well because the community that this particular lodge is now plastic free. Um, so we're seeing these great um, improvements by partnering with the community, listening to what they want, and then also working with an NGO in that community that knows um, that community to help us with that, that knowledge. And then we bring that tourism expertise and people into with that dollar. So that's one example of how we're building those products by design to ensure they have purpose and impact in the places we go. Wow, you've I, I'm going to Myanmar in a month and you've just made me so excited. Um, on an intrepid trip or? On an intrepid trip, yeah. Oh, excellent. Are you going to that project? Are you spending time in Bagan? Yeah, we are. Yeah. Oh, excellent. You'll have an amazing time. Uh, definitely make sure you have a sundown a beer and watch the um, the sunset over um, your lodge. That's one of the highlights. And the accommodation's beautiful right on the lake there, so you'll have an amazing time. Oh, what a hot tip. Oh, I'm, I'm so excited. And I think, I think that's actually a good point to make is when I um, was choosing where to go for a two-week break um, in the first half of this year, I spent most of my career working in developing countries, and I've never been to Myanmar. And I thought, I really, really want to go to Myanmar, but I grappled with the ethics of doing that. There was a part of me that went, this is a country with extremely um, serious social and political complexities at the moment. And what are the ethics of of traveling to a country like that? And I came back to a fact that I've had taught to me time and time again in, uh, you know, across two development studies degrees is countries with economic growth are less likely to have civil war. And so you doing anything to boycott the economic growth and the community development in a country is not, is not helping. And I sort of, I justified my position with that, but I think you've articulated that point even better, that when we actually support tour providers in places like Myanmar, not only are we creating economic growth, but we're also creating things like empowerment for women and, um, you know, all the things you've just named. Yeah, exactly right. And, you know, you're, you're not actually punishing the government when you don't travel. You're punishing the people on the ground. And those people need your money, your interaction, you know, by meeting and and talking to you, they're learning more about the world. You're learning more about the world. You're both becoming more compassionate. The money's getting them to help put food on their table, to help educate their children. And that's incredibly powerful. And I think that um, that's what we should be focusing on. Um, Too often, I think with a lot of travel boycotts, that it's actually doesn't actually hurt the people that we you know, not, it doesn't actually affect the government. It hurts the people on the ground. Absolutely. And I think Indonesia has been a really, um, has really exemplified this in recent years with the bilateral issues that Australia and Indonesia have had over the past five years. It seems like one of the first responses from uh, Australians and the Australian media is to boycott tourism to Indonesia, um, which is an odd response. Um, how do you educate people? on issues like that? Um, yeah, I think one of the things we've done pretty well has been around advocacy. Um, you know, I keep coming back to that elephant case, uh, our elephant uh, stance, um, and we did a really good education piece around that. But even with, um, you know, um, marriage equality, um, vote in Australia, carbon offsetting, we've been quite vocal in going out and taking a stance um, on what we believe um, is right providing our customers with why we think that is, so communicating to them via 
uh, marketing channels, um, getting out in media, speaking um, in publications. I think one of um, the big things that we've really tackled over the last couple of years has been gender diversity. So in India, like so say you take our business, we're about 70% female um, and our travelers are about 65. So about 65% of our travelers are female. But when we looked at our leaders, the, the guides on the ground, we didn't have that same diversity. Um, and it was a bit like, oh, why is that? You know, we sort of had one of those moments and we're like, let's look into it. And, and in countries like India and Morocco, we had pretty much all male um, leaders. And we were like, well, this isn't right. You know, regardless of the, the cultural um, and historical reasons for that, you know, as a company with, um, that takes a lead on these um, issues and as a purpose-driven company, it didn't sit well with us. So we set targets um, where we were going to double the amount of female leaders. We've gone out very publicly on this. We've changed the way we recruit. We've worked with government to change legislation around giving permit um, leader permits in places like Morocco. Um, and we're seeing change. You know, um, we're seeing we're going to beat our um, target of having a, um, half of our leaders, uh, or sorry, doubling our female leaders by 2020. We're going to smash that target. I think um, we've hit that today, but don't quote me. I don't know if I should have said that in public, but we're going to blow right past that, that target. <laughs> but we've been very, very vocal in that. We've you know, taken a stance, talking to the media about it, demanding change, working with the government and telling our customers about it. Um, so advocacy is important making a stance, setting yourself big audacious goals, telling your customers about it and telling the industry about it is really, really important. Um, and we're a better company for it. And our tours are better tours for taking a stance like that and talking to both the media, the industry and our customers. You certainly are. And, and Intrepid's journey is, it should be, it should be an example to the broader private sector on what it looks like to actually embed and entrench your values and your mission uh, across your operation. The other thing that Intrepid is a terrific example of is what really good private not-for-profit partnerships look like. So can you explain a little more about how you partner with not-for-profit organisations? You mentioned ActionAid Myanmar, who I know very well. I know that they do incredible work in Myanmar. How do you select not-for-profit partners and why do those partnerships matter to you? Yeah, I think there's two different ways that we tackle non-for-profits. We have a foundation, so the Intrepid Foundation, and its focus is around um, job creation and job readiness. Um, so we work with non-for-profits through a philanthropic, you know, raising money, giving grants, and they, they go, go do that work. I think that's really important because we can't do everything and we don't want to do everything, and it really should be the people on the ground helping drive change. So I think it's important to support non-for-profits in this regard. This regard. Also, too, I think it's important because you take it more risks and you innovate. You go to places that you as a company wouldn't um, and don't have that expertise and don't have that knowledge. So you're able to look at problems and you know help fund them um, in areas your business typically wouldn't. So I think that foundation piece has been really important and enables us to take some risks, be a bit more innovative with the projects we do select, tackle real issues on the ground where we just, you know, wouldn't have the expertise. So that foundation piece and, and supporting those issues is really important. The other way we go about doing it is from a shared value um, point of view. And you've probably seen, in, you know, in your space reading a lot about, you know, shared value um, and how that works 
And I think that's a really interesting place for companies to look at purpose, especially for private sector organizations looking for that, that commercial win, um, is to look at shared value principles. But effectively what that is, and you know, using that case of um, Myanmar, is you partner with a community or a nonprofit and yourself, and you have very clear guidelines and very clear ambitions about what you want to get out of it. And it's not philanthropic at all. Um, it's you as a business wanting to have commercial outcomes. So when we do go into this this project, say, in Myanmar, we want to have an amazing experience. We want the trip to be brilliant. And we also want our customers to like it so they book with us again. Yep, so it gives us a great commercial business win. ActionAid, they want to engage in the community and see improvement in that community. Yep, and they need funding. So for us to bring customers, travelers into that um, community, it gets the money into the community and helps them foster the change they want to see. And the community itself, they want to see improvement. They need revenue. They want to grow and develop and solve some of their problems. So it's a win-win scenario. So I think the way we look to partner with NGOs is through a shared value approach that it is not just a, you know giving them the money and off they go to, to, to develop something. It's working together in a partnership that we all deliver business outcomes that we need um, and we're very open about that. We tell the community that we're here, to, we want to do this, we're here to build a good experience. We tell the NGO that this is what we want and we all work together to deliver a better business outcome. Exactly. Everyone's needs are being met in that model, aren't they? And you've explained the the notion of shared value really well there. Uh, we've talked about the concept of shared value quite a lot on this show as well as uh, other emerging metrics like long-term value, um, social return on investment, which is one of my favorites, um, <laughs> all these new methodologies which have emerged to help us to redefine what we mean when we say value because traditionally value has been completely aligned to financial value. And yep. we now define value as encompassing people, profits, planet, that triple bottom line notion. How did, I mean, you've already said that Intrepid has always had this ethos as a company due yep. to your founders, but how yep. did shared value as a methodology emerge? Yeah, I'm going to be a cop out and say that it's always been part of the business. Um, but... <laughs> you can say that. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I think like a few of these things, like I think the company was set up um, in this way and now there's uh, terms for the things <laughs> that we do, which maybe there they, they hadn't been. But, you know, we'd been working um, in a shared value way for, for many, many years. Um, but I think it, it came uh, from our founder, Daryl Wade. Um, he's very inquisitive, goes out, um, educates himself in a number of different ways and um, – he, he came across the, that methodology um, and has really pushed to embed that in our business. So, um, you know, we've had staff go and shared value courses. We're quite pushed to learn and operate in this way. So it's been built into our business, but our founder, Daryl, uh, has really pushed this through the organisation and um, really been a champion around getting us to learn more about it, understand and try and do business, or do business um, with shared value at, at its heart. I think you raised an interesting point there that you're doing things that have always been done, but they just have names now. <laughs> and um, <laughs> I, I have this reflection a lot. It's this like epidemic of purpose that we're seeing uh, at the moment. And there's so many emerging buzzwords and, you know, there's a lot of corporate rhetoric that 
I, as much as anyone, am guilty of using. I love a good buzzword. But I sure I am too. I probably <laughs> dropped a few in this conversation, so sorry. Oh, there's nothing wrong with buzzwords. But, you know, how do how, how do you feel about that? Like when you look at our post-Royal Commission society where a lot of companies are jumping on this purpose bandwagon, what's your take on, oh, I think on this? More power. I, oh, I think it's fantastic that we've got businesses now looking beyond just profit, that they're trying to have um, positive impact. I think we've seen a lot of brands come out and maybe not do it as well as they should have. They've taken it from a marketing angle. But if they learn from that and then build their products to deliver on a purpose and have positive impact, that's good. You know, if to think if they weren't doing that previously and they've made a, a stuff up on a marketing campaign that then has led them to work out how to deliver positive impact through their product, I think it's a good thing. Um, and I think, you know, um, the more people are out there talking about it, the more businesses are focusing on delivering value beyond just profit. You know, so profit is important and we want to deliver that, but they're looking to uh, how they treat their workers, how they um, create their product, how do they engage in the community, um, you know, how they look after their customers. If this happens, that's fantastic. So I think um, initially with any new trend, there's going to be a lot of buzzwords. There's going to be um, some stuff ups along the way. Um, but overall, I think it's going to be a good thing if we see more organizations become B Corps after the Royal Commission. Um, that means there's going to be a much bigger lens on their business beyond just profit. They're going to have to really look at how they treat their workers, how they're engaging the community, what their role in the environment is. So to have more companies do that, that's great. Um and have more companies talk about it in public, it's fantastic. So for me, I think more power to it. Let's um, see what happens. There's going to be a few stuff-ups along the way and some funny words too. So I look forward to that. Yeah, me too. And I think the law reform that we've seen over the past 12 months in Australia, like we've had we had our modern slavery legislation passed about a month back. And not only is it, you know, it's a great, it's a step in the right direction that that legislation has been passed. But I think it's also indicative of this trend towards businesses having to be accountable for every part of their business. You can't use the excuse anymore that we just didn't know. Like we didn't know this was happening in our supply chain or we didn't know this was happening to our workers. There's there's this renewed emphasis on both transparency and greater awareness of of the effects of your business, um, you know, perhaps secondary or third generation effects. But yeah, a pressure on businesses to show more accountability and more awareness. What are your thoughts on that? I think well, it's good. I think I think it's good. It's hard. Like we struggle with it. Like we're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. We're always finding things that we need to get better at. Um, you know. Um, for example, and, and this is where I think B Corp's really good is that framework piece. Um, so if we see companies tackle this, I think B Corp will help them find out those unintended consequences. You know, because I think any business is complicated and if you're just looking at your financial numbers, if finance is your only metric, you only measure finance. You don't measure the other parts. So you're not looking into, you know, what is our actual environmental impact, what you know, what's happening in our supply chain who's actually purchasing our products, what's happening. You're just looking at the, the dollars at the end. So I think if this leads to a rise of consciousness around looking at the other parts of your business, um, I think you will need to look at some sort of accreditation like B Corp to find those things, you know, to really highlight and give some rigor around looking into it. 
Um, but, you know, for one example for us was us in supply chain. Um, we do a lot of home uh, cooking in Egypt. So you go and have a meal and you get to interact with a family and have an amazing meal, which is one of my favorite things to do is eat. But we discovered that our contracts were generally with the, the male in the family, even though they didn't actually run the business. It was the um, lead female in the family. And B Corp sort of said to us, you know, why are you doing this? You know, you really should have the contract and the money going to the women that are running the business. And we were like, yeah, of course. What? <laughs> why weren't we doing that? And that process enabled us to quickly make that change. So I think those unintended consequences we should be responsible for, but you've got to put processes in place to make sure you can actually fix them. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point actually, isn't it? Like how, how do you – and I guess that's the question when you're working in a very cross-cultural context is how much can you actually create change? If it's a deep – like if it's a gender, if it's a structural issue relating to gender as it would be in Egypt where gender norms have been formed over hundreds of years, is your – hundreds of years, I sound, I sound ridiculous, probably thousands, <laughs> probably a lot more. Millennia. <laughs> uh, millennia. Um, how – you know, is your focus on just creating micro changes, like things as little as could we put the contract in both of your names? Or like yeah. how do you find the micro both. step? Yeah, um – I think there's some things which just incremental benefits, making those small changes and other things it's, you know, those big, hairy, audacious goals. You know, with that example I used around about our women leaders in India, we actually had to change how we went about recruiting. So we had to put up advertising in, in our hairdressers, in universities, in different areas where groups of women were hanging out. Then, not on, then on top of that, we had to go meet the families. We had to go meet the families and convince them that this was a job, a viable job, had to go meet their partners and say, this is a career opportunity for your wife or your daughter. So we had to then go about do those micro changes, so those changes in how we go about recruitment, to then get the bigger goal. You know, now we're seeing every year in India, half of our leaders are now female that are coming on board each year. So those micro changes do have big impacts. Yeah, they do. They really do. And if all businesses working in an international space could focus on making those micro changes, the cumulative effect of that would be very, very significant. Yeah, and I think that's what's happening a lot of the time with the bad stuff that happens. It's the micro things that ladder up. The people aren't doing the right thing at that ground level. If that happens a million times, that ladders up to a big problem. Yeah, yeah, which is the essence of climate change, isn't it? <laughs> exactly, yes, exactly. Okay, so... There's something I wanted to ask you at the outset. So I want to ask you before we close, 10 years ago, did you think you would be the chief purpose officer? Like, was this the dream job for you? <laughs> no, I was probably still somehow holding on to dreams that I was going to make it as the captain of the Australian cricket team or a stand-up comedian or something like that. <laughs> and and have reality, you put those dreams aside now or are they still on the table? Uh, no, they're still when I'm when I'm when I'm on the train by myself looking out the window. It's definitely um, um, I'm definitely thinking there. about that that, that stand up gig I'm doing at the forum or making a hundred at the G. So they're definitely uh, omnipresent in anything that I do. Um, but no, ten years ago I was totally different career. I was doing business development for um, call center and uh, call technologies. Um, so no, I, and the, the, short, the short answer is, is definitely no, and I. I probably wouldn't have 
even thought that purpose was a career to go down at that point. Um, and I was probably had big corporate ambitions at that point. I was clean shaven, wore a suit, um, spoke probably a little bit differently than I am now. I was maybe a little bit more cocky and not as humble and had, you know, a number of other weird things happening at that time as a as a 27-year-old man. So, yeah, no. <laughs> wow, wow. It's funny how personal transformations always sort of align with your career transformations. Yeah, I, I it's been a weird – I've had this question a lot um, – over the last couple of months as I've been speaking about the role and it's um, not one that when you're in your career, you think about while it's happening. Yeah. And then I'm in, you know, I've had this role for eight months now and I'm like, at no point did I ever think I was going to be a CPO. But now that I'm here, I'm so proud and humble and, you know, happy that I've got this opportunity and I don't, couldn't imagine doing anything else right now. So yeah. And, and also the, you're right too on the personal stuff. The effect it's having me now as a, as a person has been, much more profound than I imagined. So one of the, the first things in the role I did was work with the team on a reconciliation action plan. Um, and the journey I've been on personally around, you know, um, learning about our First Nations people has been amazing. I'm now reading books. Um, before I – one of my favourite artists is a, um, Briggs, which is an Australian uh, rapper, and he has this really cool black flag T-shirt that had an Aboriginal flag on it. I never felt comfortable to wear it. And I was lucky enough to talk at an event and I spoke to a First Nations lady and she's like, hell yeah, wear this shirt, wear a pie, you're an Australian, get that thing out. Then I was like, yeah, why should I be ashamed, you know, wear this with pride um, and get that flag out there because it's a beautiful flag and it represents an amazing group of people. And so the change I'm having as a person has been quite profound and not something that I thought I would ever have. You know, some you try and separate personal and professional all the time but the impact it's having on me as a person's cool and a little bit unnerved a little bit nerve-wracking at the same time yeah wow that's awesome to hear okay so 10 years from now the question that I often close our interviews with is what does success look like for you 10 years from now um oh hopefully I'm the captain of the Australian cricket team (laughs) and a a stand-up comedian (laughs) (laughs) yeah Oh yeah, if I, if I could do those two, it'd be pretty good. Um, look, to be honest, I went and saw um, a film that's, it's, that, that we've partnered with, um, 2040. Um, it's a film about what the world could look like in 2040 if we did all the um, positive things that are available now. You know, if we actually tackled climate change, if we actually, um, you know, changed the way our relationship with energy, changed our relationship with cars, what a cool um, film. reduced the amount of meat. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's um dumb, it's from the team that did that sugar film. Oh yeah, okay. Um, and it's all about um, what if what if we did all the things um, that we should be doing? What's the future that we could create? Um, because obviously at the moment with how the environment's going, that it's um, not trending in the, the right direction. So, um, you know, with that film in mind, I think for me success is that Intrepid Travel is the best travel company for the world um, and that the travel industry and all businesses are focusing on regenerating the planet. Um, and I think if in 10 years' time, if I was, you know, for my personal success is that um, in some small way, I've helped the planet be a better place um, than it was today. I think that would be pretty cool. Um, and if I can do that, that would be, um, 
yeah, I'd be personally pretty chuffed um, and I'd still be trying to be the comedian uh, or make that 100 at the G. So, yeah, if I could do those three things, I'd be pretty wrapped. It's good to keep your options open, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, I, don't, I don't even know if I can lift my arm above my head these days anymore to bowl. But, uh, yeah, I think it, I just think if, you know, comp- if, if, if Intrepid in 10 years' time is legitimately the best travel company for the world and we're helping clearly, uh, you know, that we're doing things that are helping the planet, I would be pretty pretty proud, and I think that would be a pretty massive success for, in my role. I love that statement, Intrepid as the best travel company for the world. Not in the world, for the world. I think that's really yeah. powerful. Yeah. Lee, thank you so much. It's been fantastic chatting to you. I really appreciate you being on the show, and I'm, um, I'm looking forward to seeing what Intrepid does under your leadership. Thanks so much, and have an amazing trip to Myanmar. You absolutely love it. It's super oh, cool. Thank you.